Good morning. So I'm going to tell you right off the bat, today is not going to be a traditional Easter service. So just let that go. <laughs> um, but it's still going to be very glorifying to Jesus. And that's what we always want to do, whether it's Easter or any other Sunday that we're gathered here together. We want to talk about the Lord and about what he's done for us, about his victory, his kingdom, and all those things. And we're certainly going to talk about that today. But we're going to stay on course and continue working our way through Ephesians like we have been. As a recap, last week is when we started chapter 2. And if you remember, we talked about how chapter 2 is divided into two movements. And the first movement is verses 1 through 10. And that tells the story of who we were in uh, before we were in Jesus, that we were cosmically dead. And then verses 11 through 22 tell the story when we were outside of Jesus, that we were also covenantally dead. We were estranged from the family of Israel, and we were isolated, alienated from the promises of God and from the covenant. And then we went on to talk about how uh, salvation is by grace and how that gift is not of ourselves. So we can't boast in our standing before God and our own righteousness. And we also can't boast that we received that gift because we're in some sort of special class, that we have some sort of special status because that's not the case. That gift is offered freely to everyone, regardless of their status or social class or anything. It's regardless of all of that. It's offered to everyone equally. And then we talked about how when you receive that gift, it comes with the expectation of reciprocity, right? When you receive the gift, it's expected that you're going to reciprocate. And what you give back is your believing loyalty. And in that, you give your very self so everything of you belongs to God, even your very self, when you accept that gift from him. That's our review from last week. And I think just to get started, to refresh our memory, we'll go ahead and we'll read through that first movement in verses 1 through 10. And y'all, being dead in y'all's transgressions and sins, in which at one time y'all walked, according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all used to live by the passions of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and the mindsets. And we were by nature children of wrath, as also were the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, and we, being dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with the Messiah. By grace, y'all have been saved. And he raised us up together and sat us together in the heavenlies with Messiah Jesus in order that he might demonstrate in the ages which are coming the surpassing richness of his grace by kindness to us in Messiah Jesus. For it is by grace that y'all have been saved through trust. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, in order that no one can boast. For we are his handiwork, having been created in Messiah Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Today, we are going to focus and talk about this portion of the first movement of chapter 2. We're going to talk about this concept here. The ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, and how that ties in 
to people who are dead in their transgression, doing the passions of the flesh and having uh, the will of the flesh and the mindsets of the flesh. As we discuss this, I'm going to talk about it in terms of the powers. You'll hear me using that a lot. And there's a lot of terms that are included, will be included in our discussion of the powers. So I just thought I'd familiarize you with some key words that you'll see over and over again as we work our way through the scriptures. So this first one here is archon, which means ruler or rule. This refers to a specific person in a role of authority, power, and widespread influence. Usually it applies to like what you would think of in that way, like kings, officials, a monarchy, priests, and officials of the temple. Next is exousia, which just means authority. And this is the structure or social arrangement that's upheld and represented by an authorized person or group. Next is dunamis, where that's a fun to say. We're pretty familiar with the term dunamis. Um, this is the real or potential influence manifest in military, political, or economic institutions or officials who represent them. And when I read the dunamis definition, I think about the dawn of the atomic age, right? When people were starting to get nukes and all of that, that was like their dunamis, that real or possible influence through the power of a military was their dunamis. And then there's thronos, which just means throne. Um, this is a symbol of the institution or the structural authority of power associated with the institution. So it refers more to the structure, not a particular person. And the last one that I don't know how to say, so I'm not going to try, means dominion and lordship. So this is just the, the sphere or the territory of a ruler's power or influence. So again, you'll see those terms used throughout our discussion about the powers in the New Testament. We'll start by going through the mentions of them that are just here in Ephesians. And you'll find, as we read through them, that the powers exist in the parallel heavenly spiritual realm and that their activity has a great influence corporately on human societies, institutions, and cultural ideologies. So the first mention of the powers is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, right here. Um, and this is where uh, Christ is portrayed. The exaltation of Jesus is portrayed over every rule, over every authority, power, and dominion. And not just in this age, right? We talked about the two different ages. Not just in this age, but also in the age to come, for all time. His victory over them is complete. And his exaltation is over authority, both in the heavenly and spiritual realm, but also over their manifestations here on earth. As you move on to chapter 2, verse 2, this is what we just read. Uh, the ruler of the authority of the air at work and the sons of disobedience. There's an important principle that is pointed out by this verse. The implication here is that these powers that we're talking about in the heavenly realm, they have an influence through people here on earth and that there's a connection between those desires and passions of the flesh and those mindsets and philosophies. There's a connection between the influences in the heavenly realm and that manifesting through people here on earth. We've talked a lot about that interconnected overlapping of um, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And that's just continuing to play out here as we talk about the spiritual forces of darkness. 
Then moving on to uh, verse 310. So in the notes here, they've just taken a small snippet of this. So I thought it'd be helpful if I kind of broadened it a bit. Um, It says, so that the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. That's what that 310 is. So it's talking about here that just the church, just by existing, that the church declares God's wisdom to the powers. This group of people that is no longer divided and defined by all their different earthly identities, but instead of that, they're united. They're reconciled to God and they're reconciled to each other in Messiah Jesus. And that they're identified based on being in Jesus And just that existence of that group declares God's wisdom to the powers of spiritual darkness. These people that exist set apart for him, identified in Jesus. Um, That's the wisdom of God on display. And then this is a big one. Everybody's familiar with this, right? Ephesians uh, 6.12. Our enemies, they're not flesh and blood, but they're the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the evil spiritual beings in the heavenly realm. And this is what we put on our armor for, right? We put on the armor of God so that we can stand against these powers. And uh, the point here that's really important is that our struggle is not against another human being. Those human beings do the work of the enemy because they're deceived, because they're captive to the powers. We have to keep that in mind. We're going to talk more about that. And then as you go on in Ephesians, you'll see that um, in chapter 4, verse 27, there's a little verse about don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil a foothold. So that's another mention of a spiritual power here. It's not in the same realm as this. Um, In that spot, devil is not a name. It's actually a title. It just means the slanderer. And um, in that verse, they're talking about, Paul's talking about that as more of an influence on the individual or the community level, like you specifically, um, don't give the devil a foothold. So not quite in the same category of what we're talking about today, but I thought I'd mention it because it's another spiritual being. So Paul did not just talk about all of this stuff in um, Ephesians. This goes all throughout his letters in the New Testament. So we'll take a look at some of those as well. So you can see here in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 16. All things were created in him, things in the heavens and things on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So again, you see that representation of the physical and the non-physical meant by the powers, the visible and the invisible on earth and in heaven. I mean, thrones are something that we're really familiar with. That's something that we see on earth all the time, our thrones. That's a very earthly concept. So Christ isn't just an authority over that spiritual activity in the heavenly realm, but that activity manifested here on earth, the visible, what we can see with our eyes, those thrones established here on earth. And this again speaks to the overlapping of heaven and earth. Those dark forces in the heavenly realm have a manifestation here on earth. And uh, they work in the institutions and major structures, cultural ideologies that influence whole societies. And the murder of Jesus 
the execution of Jesus on the cross was a manifestation of the powers. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the rest of these verses. So this next one here in Colossians 2.8, Paul saw people as being taken captive by the empty philosophies from the powers. They take you away captive through philosophies and empty deception in accordance with human traditions and the elemental powers of the cosmos, not in accordance with the Messiah. This speaks a lot to those mindsets. Remember, we read about the mindsets when we're walking in step with the ruler of this world. Um, it influences the way that people think and their philosophies of life and their worldviews. I mean, I'm sure we've all run into that. <laughs> um, people have all kinds of different thoughts about life and what it means to exist. So our carnal minds are influenced by the powers. Colossians 2.15, after disarming the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to public shame, triumphing over them in Messiah. So this is where Jesus stripped the powers of their weaponry. And this was an inversion of the cross. And it shows us the true meaning of the cross. Because in the visible earthly realm, on the cross, Jesus was the one that was exposed. He was the one that was shamed, beaten, and mocked, abused, all of that. That was what was happening. But really, the real shame and exposure was for the powers, not for him. The real shame and exposure took place in that spiritual realm as he triumphed over them. So much so that if they had known that that was going to, what was going to happen, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus but the wisdom of God was hidden from them. In Galatians, let's see, chapter 1, 3 through 4, Jesus, Messiah, who gave himself on behalf of our sins in order to rescue us from the present evil age. So the cross is also how people are freed from the influence, from the captivity to the powers in this evil age. Galatians 4, 3, we were enslaved under the elemental powers of the cosmos. Before our rescue, before we came into Messiah, we were enslaved. We were in captivity. Galatians 4.3 goes on to portray these powers as weak and as impoverished. Moving on to 1 Corinthians. This is a really important um, example of the connection between heaven and earth when it comes to the powers. Again, this is a kind of an abbreviated version, so I wanted to give you the full two verses. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This represents an interesting concept. We know that the parties responsible for putting Jesus to death were represented by Pilate and by Caiaphas. Um, it was a union to put Jesus to death between the Roman state and the Jewish religious authority. So Paul is writing this long after these individual parties have moved on, but he's still talking about them in the present tense, present tense, the rulers of this age. This is something like 10 years after they've moved on. He's talking about them in the present tense because he's not just referring to those people that were party to crucifying Jesus. He's referring to the rulers in the spiritual realm that empowered their actions. 
um, to crucify Jesus. So again, that important connection between the spiritual realm and what happens here in the earthly realm. And other New Testament writers conceived of this in the same way. If you go back and look at the Gospel of John in chapter 12, verse 31, um, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast outside. So this is Jesus talking, and he's about to go to the upper room with his disciples, and he's foretelling his death here. And he uses this word archon to talk about the ruler of this world that's about to be cast out. And when he says this, he's looking forward to the cross. He's looking forward to his resurrection and the disarming of the powers when he talks about that's the ruler that's going to be cast out. And then later, not very far later, in chapter 12, verses, uh, verse 42, he uses that same word again to talk about people. Nevertheless, even many of the rulers believed in Jesus. And he's using this word to talk about people that were in the circle of the Roman and Jewish authorities, that even though they were in that circle, they still believed in him. So again, you see that connection between the two different kinds of rulers, those in the spiritual realm and those in the physical realm. Luke 22 does the same thing here, which I think I, yeah. Um, I wanted to give you the full of Luke 22, 52 through 53 as well. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him. So he's in the garden and these are the officials, those rulers on earth that have come to arrest him, to put him to death. He says to them, have you come out with sword, swords and clubs as you would against a man inciting a revolt? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. See that union between these people coming to arrest Jesus, to crucify him. And he says, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. It's that collusion between the spiritual and the physical that we see taking place here. This is a quote from the class notes that really just sums up the concept I'm trying to drive home here, is that these statements express a worldview in which the realities we consider separate, the spiritual and the physical are unified, and they're interconnected. This isn't a new concept for us in Ephesians. This is something we've talked about a lot, but it's not just an application to us and our exaltation. It also has to do with the forces of darkness and how they influence people here on earth. So this is a section of Romans that gives a list of the powers, according to Paul. And the rhetorical design, well, I'll read that to you later, um, breaks it down in such a way that it makes a point. But I'll just read this first. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, and not things to come, not powers, not height, nor depth, nor any creature will separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. So you can see there the way that that is designed. It lays out, you can see those things at the top are kind of like 
things humans do. Um, they persecute, they uh, cause famine, they wage war on each other. And then underneath that, you have like these more cosmic powers and spiritual beings. And uh, the rhetorical logic here is that no creature, no creature in God's world, however rebellious and hostile to his purposes, can overpower the divine love expressed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The hostile powers include human violence and opposition, but also the corresponding cosmic powers who are responsible for suffering and death on a corporate structural level. Notice that the cosmic powers in particular are called creatures. That is, they have a proper role in God's world, though they are presently alienated from that role in their attempt to separate people from the creator's love. So that brings up a question. Are the powers always evil? And the answer to that is no. They're created entities that can serve God's purposes or they can go wrong. Remember, we just read back up in Colossians 1, all things are created for him and through him. But we're pretty familiar of the con- with the concept of something being created good and then having it go bad, having it be corrupted. That's what happened to human beings, right? When God created us, we were good. We were a good creation. And then corruption came in. It's the same kind of concept here. Something created good and it became corrupt. And this, we can even see this on the earthly plane, on the, in the earthly manifestation, is there's things that we're thankful for, like laws. There's laws that protect us and provide a structure for society, and we're thankful for a lot of those. But at the same time, they're easily corruptible. Those laws that are used to protect and preserve life and liberty can be twisted and corrupted to oppress and kill people and even to murder the unborn, things like that. So they can start out good and they can be easily corrupted. We're, we're familiar with that kind of dynamic as human beings. So I bet you can't guess where Paul's conception of the powers comes from when he writes about it in the New Testament. It comes from the Old Testament, right? So this is not a new concept biblically. This is something that um, comes from his Hebrew scriptures. So to explain that portion of it, I'm just going to have Jonathan play a video from the folks at the Bible Project. For most of human history, people have believed in some kind of spiritual realm that exists alongside the world as we know it. Right, and the biblical authors are no exception. Yeah, for them, the spiritual realm is a different kind of realm than ours. And to highlight that difference, the Bible refers to God's space as the sky or the heavens. Because the sky is really different from the land. It's above and beyond. And up there are shiny bodies that move around. I think of these as flaming gas balls. But when the biblical authors looked up, the stars gave them a way to talk and think about spiritual beings. In the Bible, they're called the sons of God, or the rulers and authorities, or even sometimes the divine council. So that sounds really important. What does the divine council Well, they're introduced in Genesis chapter 1, where they're called the host of heaven, that is, the sun, moon, and stars. And there, they're also called signs, meaning that their power and status symbolizes and points to God's power and status. Yeah, so in Genesis 1, God appoints them to rule over the day and night. Exactly. And then later in the Bible, we're told that they were celebrating God's power and creativity when he created the world. Like the cheering section of a game. Yeah, right. There are also stories in the Bible where God invites the divine council to participate in making a decision. Like when they help decide how to bring down the corrupt Israelite 
like King Ahab, or in the book of Job, where they debate God's policy of rewarding people who do good. So they're like God's staff team. But why does God need a team? If he's powerful enough to create the whole universe, he could surely rule it without any help. Well, he doesn't need them. But apparently, the God of the Bible wants to share authority with others. Oh, right. God shares his rule with human partners on Earth. And so, in the same way, there's a parallel story of God sharing his authority to rule with spiritual partners. Yes. That is, until it all falls apart in a twin rebellion. So you have humans who want to rule on Earth on their own terms. So they start building their own nation using their own definitions of good and evil. Yeah, the famous story of the building of Babylon. But check this out. When biblical authors like Moses or Isaiah looked back at the origins of Babylon, they saw more than just a human rebellion, but also a spiritual rebellion. What was this spiritual rebellion? Well, there were members of the Divine Council who, like the humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore. They wanted to be God, and they rebelled. And so these created beings deceived humans into worshiping them instead of the Creator. And so, Babylon becomes the biblical image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion. And so God scatters the people from Babylon into different nations. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says this is when God also scattered the rebels of the divine council with them. So the nations are handed over to spiritual rulers. Yes, and this is why when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day, they see two dimensions to all the chaos and injustice. Human rebels who are being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels, the idol gods of money, sex, and military power. Yeah, when humans give their allegiance to these powers, it leads to a world like ours. Right, and the best example of this is the story of the Exodus, where we're told that the Egyptian genocide of the Israelites was inspired by Pharaoh and by the gods of Egypt. That's really intense. But it's not the end of the story. When God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and its gods, he invited them to become his covenant partners and learn a different way of ruling the world. And they agree to it, but in the end they don't honor the partnership. They give their allegiance to other gods. And so this leads to their exile in Babylon, where they become slaves once again to a foreign nation and their spiritual rulers, awaiting a new exodus into freedom. And this is where the story of Jesus picks up. He said he was here to rescue the world and take it back from the rebels. Which rebels? The human ones or the spiritual ones? Exactly. For Jesus, it was all connected. When he marched into Jerusalem for Passover, he was announcing the ultimate exodus. He was there to confront and overcome all rebel powers and authorities, and he did it by giving up his life. So this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities triumphing over them by the cross. Yes, Jesus condemned our evil by allowing the rebels to unleash all their hate and evil on him. But then he overcame it with the power of his love and resurrection life. And then Jesus told his followers that all authority in heaven and earth now belongs to him. Now yeah, the ultimate human and divine partner. This is really good news. Yeah, and it's why the apostles started inviting everyone to give their allegiance to the risen Jesus to discover freedom and a new way to be human. Now, while Jesus gained a decisive victory over the rebel powers, he didn't destroy them. They're still around causing problems. Yes, and in fact, they are the problem. The apostles said that humanity's real enemy is never another human. Rather, it's the spiritual powers that animate our cultural idols that inspire hatred, division, and 
violence. Uh, so when I see people hurting other people, <laughs> behind it is the divine council gone rogue. How do you deal with this kind of enemy? Well, the Apostle Paul said we can resist by putting on the character traits of Jesus like armor, faithfulness, justice, and peace. And he said that our only weapon is the word of God. That is, the biblical story of good news that Jesus has overcome all rebels with the divine power of his life and love. So that's the Old Testament perspective on everything that we've talked about. There's a lot to that. And um, there's more than just a divine counsel to the conversation about spiritual beings and the spiritual realm. If you want to learn more about that, you can go back last year, and BJ did a whole series on the divine counsel and on spiritual beings of all different kinds, and it's rich with all good information if you want to learn more about that. So the overarching points that I want to make um, as we talk about this are just a few important things I want to make sure we understand is that the powers are much more than just some invisible winged creature that inspires greedy and lustful thoughts in unsuspecting humans. There's so much more to the story of evil forces than just that. That's included, but there's more to it. These powers operate on a corporate scale, visible in human cultures and societies, as well as in the natural order of the world. They work to keep humans separate from the creator and to bring strife and division among humanity. And remember, there is an interconnectedness between their activities and the manifestations of those activities here in our physical realm. And as I thought about this, I'm still wrapping my mind around all of these concepts of spiritual powers and dark forces and things like that. And as I think about this, it has such a huge implication for how we see the world as believers. We've used this graphic a lot, but I keep coming back to it as I think about this. The human condition is so much more than just the stupid, rebellious stuff you do um, against God. That is included. Sin is included, but there's so much more to it. If you tell someone, uh, hey, it's just you doing, making bad choices, and that's what sends you to hell. You're leaving out part of the story. And that's like saying to someone that can't breathe, that can't get air, well, you just need to breathe better. Well, the reason you're dying is because you can't get air and leaving out the fact that they have lung cancer that's causing their organs to fail. Um, you got a, the whole thing. There's a whole condition that is more than just this one thing that we sometimes limit it down to. And this, what I want to drive home also is that this does not eliminate personal responsibility. Eternal punishment and hell is real. And there are real consequences for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is real. We have talked over and over about human rebellion in the garden and how all humanity has made that choice to turn away from God. That is real. This does not eliminate the personal responsibility for people that reject the gospel. But God takes a certain view of humanity that is complete. And I think that that shows us how we should view humanity as complete as well. If God knows that our frame, that in our flesh we're weak, 
that we're subject to decay and corruption. And if he sees our weakness and it moves him, it moves his heart to compassion for us, I think that that is the way that we should see humanity as well. That that should move our hearts to real compassion for people who are lost and are in captivity and deceived. That should move us. And we have to be on guard against stumbling so hard on our own frailty that we begin to condemn the frailty of other people. We have to remember, remember what you were before you were in Jesus and have real compassion for other people. And I think we have to guard our hearts because the times are just going to get worse and we have to protect our hearts. We don't want to get so focused on this increase of, in wickedness that we're already seeing and that we're going to see more. We don't want to get so focused on that that our love grows cold because our love is such a weapon. The love of Jesus is a weapon. And for that to grow cold is a sad, sad story. We don't want to get so focused on the evil of humanity and, and forget what the real source of the problem is. The situation outside of Jesus is just so utterly hopeless. There is no hope outside of Jesus. No hope. Do you see how this puts the focus on, um, instead of our enemies being other human beings, it takes that focus and it puts it on these evil forces in the heavenly realms. This knowledge is so important. This is the kind of knowledge that Jesus had when he was able to look from the cross on his enemies and say, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. He understood this whole picture, and it motivated this divine compassion in him that was so powerful. People responded. They were compelled by the compassion of Jesus that he had for them. Remember that story when he is in the garden and he's being arrested. I'm just going to read it to you. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus responded and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Peter was focused on a different battle than Jesus was. Jesus knew his battle and he knew his enemies and he knew what he was going to do. And Peter just did not catch that same vision. So that was the kind of knowledge that Jesus had about who the real enemies are and who's captive to them. Understanding captivity to the powers leads to true compassion. It leads to seeing people that are lost as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, deceived and captive. And this is how you love your enemies. I'm convinced that this is an important aspect to how in these last days we are going to be able to love our enemies. And we desperately, as the church, need to exhibit the compassion of Jesus. It's, it's so important for us. And it's increasingly apparent. We see it everywhere in the church. It's so apparent that talent and showmanship is failing. It's failing the church when it comes to hastening the harvest. It's failing at bringing people into the kingdom, the things that matter most. Maybe it gets them in the door. Maybe it gets them excited. But does it get them saved? Does it, do they get eternal life from what they're getting from that? And it's failing. What is important is the character of Christ on display through everyday Christians. Compassion, humility, faithfulness. Those are things that are truly compelling 
to the world today, lived out in real lives. That's what we need. Those are things that you can't take a class to learn. I can take a class on speaking. I can take a class on a lot of things, but those things require the transformation of my character to become more like Jesus. And that's the Holy Spirit at work in the church. And then he works through us and the world. And that is so desperately what we need is that real transformation by the spirit. And increasingly we're going to see those attributes. The character of Jesus is going to become even more counterculture in this world than it is now. And it's going to bring about that whole city on a hill, that shining light that draws people in. That's what we need. So always remember who the real enemy is and have compassion for your fellow man. And I just want to say too this morning, as we talk about being dead in your transgressions, being lost, being captive. I mean, if you know that that's you, if you're dead in your transgression, if you're a son of disobedience, if you're lost, if you're outside of Messiah, if you've never made that confession of faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want you to do that today. After I pray today, we're going to stay up here. And if that is you, please, we want to minister to you. We want to pray with you. You will never make a more important decision. I lived 22 years of my life on the other side of that commitment to Christ. And I can tell you that ever since I made that confession, there has never been a moment of regret that I handed my life over to him. So please, if that's you, come up here after I'm done praying. We want to pray with you and minister to you. Lord, we thank you. What else can we say? We offer our very lives, our very selves to you, Lord. We reciprocate your great gift, God, and we just want to give everything to you. We thank you so much for the power that lives inside of us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We thank you that it's working in us and it's working through us, Lord. We thank you for the amazing things that you're going to do in this world and in this community through these people that are sitting right here in these chairs, Lord. I pray that they would walk fully in their callings and in passion for you, that they would just live lives that are on fire for you, that they would testify to your truth, to your victory, to your love, and to your compassion, Lord. Help us, Lord, as we're out in the world to just manifest your glory, your victory, and your love to everyone, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.